Hey folks, thanks for tuning in. This is Andy and this is the Poor Pearls Almanac. Today we're joined by Chris from Kentucky Heartwood, an organization that works to protect and restore the integrity, stability, and beauty of Kentucky's native forests and biotic communities through research, education, advocacy, and community engagement. From 1992 to 2002, their all-volunteer group had remarkable and unprecedented success in changing management on the Daniel Boone National Forest. Their early work resulted in a 97% reduction in logging of the Daniel Boone National Forest, and they've been busy ever since. Chris and I have a really interesting conversation about forest protection, in particular, how when we start talking about forests in secluded areas, how quickly we can make assumptions about what those forests look like, and how a misunderstanding around what unique features these spaces have can lead to ecological devastation. I'm always excited and inspired to hear the different actions people are taking to protect their local ecology. And this one I think everyone will enjoy. And if you're in Kentucky, find out what you can do to partner with Kentucky Heartwood. Chris, thanks for coming on. Tell us a little bit about Kentucky Heartwood and where this organization came from. Hey, Andy, thanks so much for having us on, having me on to talk about Kentucky Heartwood. So Kentucky Heartwood started in the 90s during the time of the Timber Wars. In this time, there was a huge debate about whether we should be logging public lands or not, because logging on public lands is actually really financially inefficient and it causes a lot of habitat destruction. And environmentalists at the time were noticing that there was less and less old growth and it was such a precious thing. So why would, you know, the people's land be logged? That's around the time that we started. And in our first 10 years, we're all volunteers. And we were able to make really big strides in Kentucky because a lot of environmental organizations, national big ones, completely overlook Kentucky. And so the Forest Service had a really lax way of just being able to do pretty much whatever they wanted on public lands, whereas in other places, it was more, there's a lot more, um, oversight by the public of the forest. And so uh, we were able to have like a 95% reduction of logging on the Dan Boone National Forest, which is the main national forest in Kentucky. We had a forest-wide plan amendment to prohibit off-road vehicle use, uh, except for on designated trails. And we had a cancellation of this big land exchange that would have led to a resort development um, along the Cumberland River, where a lot of sensitive ecosystems are. And we also were able to get a lot of people involved in the forest planning process for the first time. So that was really exciting. And, you know, today our mission remains the same. And in the last 10 years alone, we've been able to prevent 7,000 acres from being logged on public lands. Every year we have an onslaught of new logging projects, some worse than others, some just really horrible that we are constantly keeping an eye on and giving public input on and making sure that the Forest Service isn't doing isn't violating environmental laws on our public lands. I think for a lot of people, they're listening to this and thinking, but they're the forestry service, not the deforestry service. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that that seems counterintuitive to what it is. So I don't know if you can explain like why they're involved with this. Like what, what is the logistical, like I can understand that there's probably money that drives a lot of this, but mm-hmm. how did we kind of end up here? If you can answer that. It's a great question. Yeah, every I think the general public's view of the Forest Service is as a conservation organization, but sadly they've really fit themselves more in a niche of a of a timber harvest uh, organization, and that's primarily what they do is they build roads and, and log the forests. And 
and they try to do a really good job of making it sound as good as possible. But if you know about forests and ecosystems, then you get a layer below what they're saying and you realize it's a lot of times just greenwashed logging, clear cutting a lot of times too even. And so like what I like to tell people about how this hap came to be is that, you know, a long time ago, uh, we were in a situation in the United States when the Forest Service was founded that we were at the risk of extracting almost all the timber. And the rate that it was going on private land was destroying streams and the land that the, the timber was actually on. So there was this need to have a public organization to make sure not all the timber was logged. But fast forward to today, and we're not in that situation anymore. Yet the Forest Service continues on with what they had done in the past instead of adapting to the new needs of society with climate change and the biodiversity crisis that we're facing. And so a lot of why they continue to do that is because of their budget is decided by Congress and is dependent on them logging. So even though they they have a budget of $388 million given to logging, they make only $41 million. And they are required to do that, even though they're losing all that money, to get the rest a lot of the rest of their budget. So it creates a system where they're just continuing to log, even if it doesn't make the most sense. But we're seeing a big push now. And this is emblemized by the Climate Forest Coalition and the Climate Forest Co Campaign, which is a bunch of nonprofits across the nation pushing to set aside old growth and mature forests on public lands as, as climate preserves to keep all the carbon that is in those forests in those forests instead of releasing in the atmosphere through the process of logging. One thing I think that's really interesting is you've, uh, we've had numerous clear cutting, like you've mentioned. That means we're in this kind of weird place, uh, at least where I live. I'm not sure if it's the same where you are, where an overwhelming amount of the forest is about the same age, uh, which can give the impression that like, if you don't know anything, you know, you, you've got this Overton window where your exposure to something gives you a sense of like what's normal. So if this is what all the forest looks, looks like, this is a healthy forest. Mm -hmm. And that's not necessarily the case. So there is times where forest management is an appropriate response. It's forest uh, land stewardship has, you know, existed on this continent and across the globe for since humans have existed. Yeah. But like you said, that's not what they're doing, right? In many cases, they're clear cutting, mm -hmm. and that's a problem. Yeah, it's important to realize that the Forest Service is under the the USDA, and so because they're part of the Department of Agriculture, they're very much viewing forests as in a production mindset. So everything they do is based in, not everything they do, but most of the management they do is based in maximizing timber harvest from the forest. And that's a completely different discussion than if you're also thinking about the ecological value of that forest, the water it purifies, the um, floods it prevents, the climate change it, it helps to mitigate um, and adapt to. So that creates a system where they're they're really encouraged to create these even age stands, like what you're talking about, where the forest is all the same age, because that's the best thing for getting a big harvest and making the most money off of it. But if you want a healthy ecosystem, you're looking at forests that's all different, that trees with all different ages and has a lot of diversity. Yeah. And one of the things that never really occurred to me until recently, where I live, I, I happen to stumble across this paper that because I'm always researching whatever. And it was about this small island in a pond, uh, maybe 15 miles from me, that they realized the the forest on this little island, like one acres, had never really been clear cut. It was, a, it was probably old growth. Wow. And the idea that today we're still finding old growth, I think like, it's like one of those things you think everything's already been explored. And that's not the case. And that's 
that's amazing, but also really scary when we start talking about like going in and clear cutting, especially when you start realizing that these agencies don't always have our best interests in heart. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things too that I've been realizing keeps a lot of people from seeing the whole growth is that there's this expectation that it's always just all ginormous trees, but a lot of times the oldest trees aren't the biggest ones. Um, and there's some much su- more subtler cues that you have to look for, um, at least in our area, for determining what trees are actually like hundreds and hundreds of years old. And so the Forestry Service isn't actually great at that. And they use methods that are really um, sloppy and, and haphazard for aging forests. So yeah, a lot of rule of thumb kind of stuff. Yeah. So what ends up happening is that it gets completely overlooked, especially with this this idea that everything's been logged. But especially where we're working in Kentucky, there's these really remote areas that we're finding that some of the most incredible old growth, and it is incredibly rare. And so that's even more important for why to keep it. But yeah, it gets it gets incredibly overlooked by the Forest Service. Yeah. So one of the trees that uh, I saw on the website, you guys have a lot of red hickories. And I believe you guys found the oldest red hickory in, is it Kentucky or the entire country? Yeah, it's it's actually the largest red hickory in the world. And we decided not to core it to get its age because we didn't want to possibly introduce any disease or anything. But it's it's the widest and tallest uh, red hickory in the world. And it's also, um, red hickory is a relatively rare hickory tree and um, not as well studied, but it's so tall. It's 160 feet tall that it's the tallest known hickory tree in the world as well. That's awesome. Pretty incredible. And just to show you how amazing this forest, this old growth forest that it's in is, is that just 100 feet away from it, a tree that I like to call junior is the second largest red hickory in the world. So this is just, it shows you just how many amazing trees and what incredible forests this tree is in. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, I hope you're collecting some pretty good seeds out of that because I can imagine those are some great genetics if they've survived the, uh, I'm, I'm guessing it must be a couple hundred years old at least. Oh yeah. I probably, yeah. Uh, at least, you know, hickories get pretty old. So yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So I, I looked at some videos that you had done after they'd clear cut some other areas and you can see these landscapes are completely destroyed mm-hmm. invasive species coming in, uh, massive erosion. Yeah. And, uh, that's not the same narrative though, that the, you, that the government's saying is happening there. Correct. Oh yeah. That's, that's absolutely correct. The erosion is complete is particularly problematic and it just it keeps popping up over and over again in the form of landslides. And these are major, major events of soil sliding into streams. And like in itself, it's pretty bad in that forests can't really regrow in those areas and the streams are going to be really negatively affected. But it just it's really compoundingly worse that there's federally listed endangered species in those streams and they're sensitive to this exact thing with soil getting into the stream and causing sedimentation and making it murky and these species is a mussel species and a fish species they actually like can't breathe when when there's a lot of soil in the water when it gets again sedimentation so it's putting these species at risk and and causing violations of the endangered species act but the forest service just completely denies it and instead of correcting the mistakes they made in the past they're refusing to and pushing forward with more logging projects, even though we're seeing so many landslides happening on these past logging projects and have even found communications through uh, Freedom of Information Act requests from former Forest Service uh, soil scientists talking about their landslide risk caused from from logging in these particular 
uh, slopes because, you know, this geology is unique and that it has these coal seams in it and it has very loose soil and they're also extremely steep. So it's just the perfect cocktail to make these landslides. But instead of really addressing it, the Forest Service is just, you know, plowing forward with the project. Yeah. And I think that raises a bigger question of why is it structured this way and who benefits? Because I feel like usually there is somebody that benefits. And I'm going to guess that some of that has to do with the people that get to uh, process and sell that lumber. Yeah, it's a considerable amount of lumber. Um, The Redbird project is estimated to be about $4 million worth of lumber. And then they, they estimate about $85 million worth of like products and stuff from, from that. So yeah, that there's a, there's a lot of financial interest to timber companies to continue logging on public land and for it to continue to not meet environmental standards that have been kind of foundational to the United States. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, one of the organizations that's involved with the Department of Forestry for especially where you are trying to clear some of this land and this concept of greenwashing. And that's with the Ruffed Grouse Society, which on its surface, you would say is, oh, this must be like a a naturalist organization or maybe they're a hunter organization, something that's around like, let's make this ecosystem healthier for the ruffed grouse, right? Yes. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So the Ruffed Grouse Society is a huge problem in our area because they work with the Forest Service on what they call stewardship agreements. And so the Forest Service is able to give them a certain amount of their budget because it's uh, stewarding the land. But what that really looks like is is mostly just more logging. And they really latched on to the rough grouse because there was some research in the 70s that suggested that they like some younger trees for foraging. Uh, I believe they're birch trees, aspen trees, sorry, they're aspen trees, younger aspen trees. Those aspen trees aren't in our area. So a lot of the the research that suggests they like longer forests don't really apply to Southern Appalachia. Yet it's a really great excuse to log and you're doing it for animals, but these are species of least concern. And it's really ridiculous to prioritize them over all the endangered species that are dependent on the forest to be remain standing, especially in our particular area in, in Redbird District. And what's amazing, and I don't think people fully comprehend how incredibly diverse Appalachia is in terms of species diversity. Mm -hmm. It's one of the densest, uh, most diverse places in the country. Yeah. That that blows me away. Like if you start looking at like the structure of the forest in Appalachia, it's just like, it's surreal how much exists there. And especially if you're into like herbalism or any of that kind of stuff, the native species that are herbal plants is like, I think it's like 15 times higher than anywhere else in the country. It's just, it's insane how much diversity there is. Yeah, it's a a real gift of biological resources, but it's incredibly precious too in that. Like a lot of the East Coast, we've faced a lot of logging in the past. And so we're down to, you know, less than 1% of the land cover is, is old growth. And in this old growth, it's some of the most, like you said, diverse forests in the U.S. It's a biodiversity hotspot. So it's something that is incredibly precious. And we, we believe it's really important to keep around, um, not just for the fact that, you know, these living things have the right to survive and continue to exist and not go extinct. But also, yeah, there's incredible um, medicinal potential. Um, we have our director, uh, Lauren Kalmeyer, is actually an herbalist herself. And and Chris Schimler, who is... Um, the, one of the founders of Kentucky Art was also very much into herbal medicine. I, I am myself too. And 
yeah, it's a, it's a big part of like our connection to this forest is, is the medicine it creates for us. And, and also, you know, the, the spiritual, emotional side of, of spending time in this incredible old growth forest. Hey there, it's Andy from the Porporals Almanac. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to our podcast. As you can probably tell, this content involves extensive research and editing to release weekly episodes. If you think this content is valuable for the future that we inherit, please consider financially supporting this project by visiting poorproles.com and clicking on the Patreon, Venmo, Ko-Fi, or PayPal tabs. Every dollar helps offset our costs for hosting the podcast content and helps offset hundreds of hours of work put towards this project monthly. Thank you for supporting us by sharing, liking, and donating to this project. Together, we can build a better future. So what can you tell me about what they're trying to do right now? I know you guys have been um, pretty busy. So like, what, what's on the chopping block right now? There's a lot of things going on across the forest in Kentucky. Um, we have three main things that we're working on. We've been talking a lot about Redbird Ranger District, which is where the world champion Red Hickory is. And uh, there's almost 3,500 acres of logging going on there. So we've been really focused on that, and we're actually going to be filing suit against the Forest Service um, for violating the Endangered Species Act over that project. But we're also looking at a stream restoration project to the north of there that is uh, really problematic. There seems to be a lot more greenwashing going on. At first, we were supportive of it, but we've been looking into it more. And it seems like there's, um, there's kind of similar issues in that they're not really respecting the Endangered Species Act. Um, and then we have an upcoming project in Jellicoe where Jellicoe is like the twin of Redbird, but it hasn't happened yet. It's not as far along. We're trying to stay on top of it so that we can avoid the mistakes that have happened in Redbird um, moving forward and hopefully be a less painful process where we can work more with the Forest Service. But we'll we'll have to see about that, how that, how that turns out. You know, you said to not have the same mistakes that you've had with Redbird. Mm-hmm. The thing is, I think a lot of people understand like land defense in in the sense of like, we don't want anything cut down, Mm -hmm. but unfortunately we live in a world where we do have to be somewhat pragmatic. I guess that raises a question like, is there some logging that people can do in this type of ecosystem or maybe around it? Like when we talk about old growth forests, you'd mentioned there's 20, you know, some of these forests are thousands of acres and only a couple hundred of those acres might be old growth forest. Mm-hmm. But much of that woods also might be almost old growth forest. And I think that's yeah. the thing we forget is that like forests are constantly aging. So mm-hmm. while there may not be old growth today, there could be in the future. So what does sustainable and responsible stewardship and land management that allows for thinning forests look like in this kind of ecosystem? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I want to start by pointing out that Kentucky Heartwoods work, um, we're primarily focused on public lands. This is land that we all own, the taxpayers pay for, and it's stewarded by the Forest Service. So that's about 5% of the U.S. timber output. So we could actually stop all logging on public lands and still have a sustainable economy and be able to get the wood that we need. But again, there's also different levels of how sustainable the logging that's being done on that public land is. And so the fight that we're fighting, we would love for one day that for there to be no logging on public lands. And that's actually supported by a majority of the public because public lands are a lot of times viewed as an area to do recreation and to have those great ecosystem services. Although I don't really love that term, 
we know that forests do things for us beyond just providing timber. So that's a lot of what people view public lands as being for. So it would be great to not log them, but if we are going to be logging them, Kentucky Heartwood is really adamant that we don't do the worst logging, especially logging that violates environmental law. And so that's what we've had to focus on because we're so far from not logging public lands. There's so many thousands of acres of logging going on on it that we're just trying to prevent the worst of it. That's outright illegal. Yeah, I mean, you would think the bar is pretty low when you're just saying, can the government not do things that it made itself illegal? Yeah. <laughs> you would think that wouldn't be a hard sell. I know. But it's here we surprisingly are. frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, when we're looking at these four or these woodlands, I, I think it's really interesting that you guys ended up getting into some of the watershed, like the streams and things, because, I mean, it makes sense. You're trying to protect this woodlands to protect the water. And then when the woodlands doesn't get protected, then you have to go and protect the watershed and the rivers and the streams and the endangered and endemic species to those areas. Has that been a different fight? Is it still with the Forestry Service or is it with someone else? And is that different because of the protections on wetlands? Yeah, it it is a very different fight. And I have my background in terrestrial ecology and forest restoration. And so I don't really, it's a whole nother game to be talking about aquatic ecosystems. And it's been a process where I've had to learn a lot and depend on a lot of other people. But it has been with the Forest Service. And like with many things, the Forest Service is contracting out to other people to actually do the work. But we're mainly advocating, it's on public land, on national forest land, and we're mainly advocating to the Forest Service to correct and correct course. Because not only have they done these problematic stream restoration at Stone Cold Branch near Cave Run Lake, but they're proposing 10 more. And from what we've seen, been able to get out in the field and seen, a lot of them are very unjustified, similar to this one. And a lot of them boil down to the there being money that the Forest Service can make off doing these, um, which is really counterintuitive because you would think a stream restoration would just be something good for the ecosystem, which is what we assumed at first. You can't do that. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it turns out there's all this money set aside from all of the um, past projects, especially like highway projects where we've destroyed wetlands. And so it's a different government agency that has all this money. And they're actually paying the Forest Service hundreds of thousands of dollars to allow them to do work on their restoration work on their land, which it's, it seems like over the years has gotten less and less stringent and less and less about actually ecosystem restoration and more about getting this grant money. And just basically what they do is they bulldoze all the stream bed. And a lot of it's perfectly intact, pristine stream bed, but they get more grant money if they bulldoze it. So they'll go up small, tiny tributaries they have no business being in and a whole bunch of other horrible stuff that I don't necessarily have to get into unless you want to. I mean, I do. I just... I can hear future me being like, this is what's going to happen with carbon credits. Like, this is it. And it just, it kills me. But yeah, if you want to talk a little bit further about it. Well, I'm glad you brought that up about carbon credits because it's like, it, it gets back to this idea that, you know, even if we create these things that look good on paper, like what really matters is that we're grounded in the right things. And so like this ecosystem and uh, stream restoration, it would be totally great. I think if they were actually like, they put the ecosystems first, but we're seeing that they're not. And ways that we're seeing that is that they've said that they're not going to do logging in this really um, highly protected riparian area where the stream is. And, you know, normally they would never be able to touch it. The Forest Service even can't log that area. But th- they're saying they're not going to do it because there's these federalists and endangered bats that live in it. And in the summertime, they come and they they raise their babies in in the trees, in the hollow trees in this area. 
And the Forest Service has said they're not going to log in the summertime because of that. And they've had to pay $300,000 of fines. I mean, more or less fines, mitigation fees. They've had to pay $300,000 because there's these endangered bats in 65 acres that they're tearing out. And instead of like just following what they said of not doing it in the summertime, they're continuing to tear out trees in the summertime, just completely ignoring and disrespecting the Endangered Species Act. On top of that, they said they were going to do sedimentation control. They had a sediment pond to collect a lot of the uh, erosion that was happening when doing all this bulldozing in the stream, but it's blown out in the early spring. And instead of fixing it, they just continue to do more work. The reason this is problematic is there's more federally listed endangered species downstream of there that are sensitive to, to sediment in the water. So it seems like if they actually cared, they would just fix the sediment pond before doing more work. It's just we're getting all these these signs that they don't really care about the ecosystems. They're just they care about the the millions of dollars they're getting from doing this contracting work, it seems like. Yeah, that seems like the American way. You can follow the dollars and see why things are going the way they are. And here we are. Uh, watching our ecosystems, these vulnerable, precious ecosystems that have existed on this continent for thousands of years just get wiped away uh, slowly, despite, you know, supposed uh, laws and regulations to keep that from happening. You know, if it only costs a fine to to damage these things, mm-hmm. then somebody will come up with the money to pay that fine if the if there's profit to be made. Yeah, and that's what we're seeing. <laughs> yeah, it's really horrible. Yeah, $300,000, I guess, is just nothing for them to pay for all the endangered ha- bad habitat they're destroying because it's millions of dollars for these stream restoration contracts. And it's it's just, it doesn't make sense because you could do this work in a place that there's not a hundred year old forest on the stream. It's it's just so frustrating to, to see that it seems like people don't actually care about the ecosystems doing this work. Like this is, this is supposed to be the one thing, you know, the one time we're actually restoring streams and doing goods. Like we, we put it aside for doing the highway projects, but like, this has got to be the the real positive impact. This can't be like this. At least that's how we feel. Yeah. Now, uh, you've talked about these uh, endangered bats. That money, does that actually go to restore? Uh, how do you restore? I, I don't even know how do you restore that kind of an ecosystem to say like, okay, you're spend, you've got $300,000. Like, let's install some fake dead trees like i'm not sure what what you do here you know what i mean yeah you can't you can't really it's it's really hard it's been very controversial and it's really hard to to really do a fair three hundred thousand dollar trade for destroying endangered species habitat but what it gets used for is for buying land for conservation use by by another nonprofit in kentucky but we don't necessarily know if that's land that these bats are on I, i don't know the details of it though to be honest sure sure that's fair is there anything that you think is really important that people don't know about this type of work? Like, I, I feel like that's one thing that I experience in some of the work that I do is sometimes there's things when you're when you're doing the day to day that's really obvious that is not obvious at all to people outside of it. Is there something you think people should know about uh, the work you're doing or what you're seeing or anything in particular? Yeah, I think one thing that's important is that there's very few people that actually pay attention to what's going on that the forest service is doing and it's thousands and thousands of acres. So it's, it's very overwhelming. And I think it's important to know that like, it's really important for more people to care and to at least let the forest service know that they're paying attention and they care about this. And even from our perspective, like we're, we're not able to really handle everything that's coming our way from the forest service. So I don't know, I guess it, 
that's just one of the things that I didn't realize until until doing this work is is just how overwhelming and how kind of alone you feel. To me personally, who cares about you know ecosystems a lot and, and public lands, it feels like there should be more um, people you know doing this work and and giving more oversight. But it's just unfortunately, there's just not very much, especially in Kentucky, at least. Yeah, I think you you can say like, oh, there's 300 acres of old growth forest in like in, in terms of the state of Kentucky. That's not a lot of land. You would think like per capita, that's tiny. Mm-hmm. You would think that would translate into people being more aware of what's happening with it or more invested in what's happening in it. It can be really alienating for people to get involved with something like that or to be aware of it or to have time to go experience it and value it and build that sense of this is my this is mine as part of this community. Yeah. That's why I think a lot of people just need to go out and do things and be in nature and yeah, I agree. get some sense of ownership of that. And it all comes back down to feeling like you are supposed to be a part of that ecosystem and related to it in in relation to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really important part is having having some sort of relationship. And it seems like we're getting farther and farther away from that. But it's a really like therapeutic and 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 beautiful thing. And um, couldn't agree more. That's really important. So for people that are listening and they're all fired up and want to do something to help you guys out. Where can they find you guys? Is there something in particular they can do to help support you guys? What should people do that want to want to do more than just listen to this episode? So we're at kyheartwood.org. Uh, that's our website. And on our website, you can find out about um, upcoming actions. Right now, there's a public comment period about old growth forests on public lands. And so submitting a public comment about that can make a, a positive impact. You can also find us on social media. And we're Kentucky Heartwood. That's on Instagram and, and Facebook. As I mentioned before, we're pretty understaffed. So we're really trying to make a push to to grow our staff and be able to do this, all the work that is needed to be done. So like any help financially is really appreciated right now. And also just like, you know, following us on social media, it gives us a big boost to see that people care about this work. And, you know, every every little thing counts to us. And we really appreciate everyone who's supported us so far and and in you for having us on to to spread the word about this work it's it's all um, every little bit's appreciated and we, we make the most of, of everything awesome thanks so much you guys are in the trenches and i think like what you guys are doing needs to get a lot more attention so uh hopefully people will go check out your website and maybe uh show up and annoy some forestry workers that are <laughs> doing damage to forests yeah that 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 sounds awesome <laughs> Uh, okay, Chris, uh, thanks so much. This was great. I'm happy to see that you guys are still going going strong, and uh, hopefully next time we talk, things will be in better shape. Yeah, I uh, look forward to talking again in the future sometime. Thanks again, Annie.